Unbound Theatre presents The Chronicles of Professor Chronomier Borrowed Hours Written by Dario Knight and performed by Erica Sanderson He knew he was bleeding. He could taste the warm blood in his mouth, feel it trickling down his chin and soaking his beard. His eye and cheek ached from the aftermath of heavy blows, but how had he come upon them? He must have been running. His chest was heaving and his legs protested as he staggered along the dark street. The world about him seemed distorted, as though it too were bleeding, blurring at the edges of his vision into some void beyond. He saw the tavern ahead of him, had he really come this far into the city? Where had he come from? No recollection stirred within him other than the memories of running and of pain. But here he was. He staggered onward towards the building swathed in shadow. Threads of light danced in the mullioned windows. Someone within had lit the fire. There was shelter to be had. Somewhere above him the thatch of a roof bristled, giving way under some heavy object. He drew his knife, and pointed it to the heavens, but the skyline was dark and devoid of movement. His senses were misfiring. He needed rest. But there was something out there. He could feel it now. Something lost to his memory that he'd been chasing. All that remained were the waiting tavern and him. He neared the building and placed a scuffed and blistered hand on the door. Let there be rest, he thought. Let there be peace. With a mighty effort he threw the door open, and immediately felt the warmth of the fire bathe his injured face. There were others here, two voices, both women, exclaiming at his entrance. He could discern no words nor comprehend their faces. He staggered over to a table and fell onto a stool. Then one of the faces came closer to him. There she was, those eyes, eyes that could see everything, above a smile that banished the weary aching of his body. He had found her again. Then darkness. He had passed out, he was sure. Images flashed before him, the two women helping him to his feet, the tankard of ale in his hand and a husk of bread chewed with relish. He heard his own voice conversing with the strangers, felt the warm glow of laughter and the tantalising threads of things unsaid. Then the creature came. The window shattered and threw shards of glass across the room. Before him stood an abomination, the skin of a man pulled across a skeletal beast that belonged in no mortal realm. There was something about the face he found familiar. He had known this man before he became a monster. He heard a scratching, scathing voice rattling in his ear, and the defiant tones of the kindly woman responding. Once more, the seconds passed in flashes, the creature bearing down on him, his dagger plunged into his side, and then the claws, great black skeletal talons. 
One sliced through the air and caught his face, then the other drove forward and pierced his chest. Pain erupted, and the world became silent. In an instant he was on the floor, and the creature was gone. All that remained was the friendly face of the woman, the mystery he would never solve. The darkness at the edge of his vision swallowed him up, and then he woke. The tavern was gone, replaced by a dull room with few furnishings. He lay on an uncomfortable bed wrapped in a sheet soaked in his own sweat. His clothes had been thrown across a chair nearby. Daylight hung in dusty beams stretching in from a grubby window. He placed a hand to his chest, then his cheek, then his lip. No injuries save the scars of old skirmishes. A bad dream, he thought. Always the same bad dream. Throwing the damp bedding to the floor, Christopher Marlowe rose to his feet and prepared himself for the morning's duties. The city awaited him. Outside, a great throng of Londoners were bustling along the narrow streets strewn with straw and mud. Hundreds of men and women swarmed the area, hurrying this way and that, sparing no glance at their fellow commuters. Had they been paying more attention, they'd have noticed the woman who faded into view from out of thin air, walking casually amongst them as though nothing remarkable had happened. As it was, none marked her, and she joined the masses of pedestrians headed about their day, like a swan joining a gaggle on the river. She looked up at the curious buildings either side of the street. The further they extended toward the sky, the more they bent towards one another, almost forming a tunnel that kept most of the street in perpetual shadow. She dropped her gaze to look at the various passers-by and began to feel self-conscious. Everyone's clothes were well-worn and marked with old stains or patches of repair, yet her own dress, whilst accurate to the Elizabethan fashion, was pristine. She slowly raised a hand to the top of her chest. A faint vibration burbled under her fingertips, and the dress began to change. Creases snaked across the fabric, woven between patches of discoloration. Now she was truly incognito. A chime sounded in her ear, reminding her to report back. She raised a finger to the side of her head, masking the action as best she could under the guise of an aching ear, and muttered under her breath, Embarkation completed. No signs of disturbance. Mission underway. Her hand dropped back to her side. No one would be listening. She would replay the message to herself when she edited the report once the job was done, but she knew the others would spare it no time. Not any more. That's why she'd been sent here in the first place, she told herself. Had it been a cruel joke? A dead end of history for a career with no prospects? It was punishment. Stifling her unhappy thoughts with a deep breath, she raised her head and walked on, in search of her target. Marlowe had dutifully made his way to the royal court. All eyes turned away from him as he passed, no man or woman daring the risk of making a connection with him. They had their reputations to think about. He stood now at the door of the star chamber, his way blocked by two heavy guards. Sorry, squire, can't let you in, burbled the first, a trace of laughter pushing at the words as they left his mouth. His colleague tremored with a suppressed giggle. I have been summoned, Marlowe replied calmly. The council insisted. All the same, sir. Can't let you in, the guard repeated, following the claim with the hiss of escaping mirth. And why is that? asked Marlowe, scanning their fast-falling masks of seriousness. Because I ain't here, <laughs> exploded the guard, 
and the two men finally relented to their laughter. Marlow remained still, refusing to acknowledge the two before him, nor indeed the nearby eavesdroppers who had joined their guffawing. Then to whom do I report? he asked. The first guard clumsily gathered up his composure. Search me, squire. Perhaps they've had enough of you. <laughs> the laughter began anew. Marlow turned his gaze to the second guard. Tell me, sirrah, did your mother gift you with a tongue, or is your comrade here bearing the burden of oafishness for the pair of you? The laughter stopped. It erupted once more when Marlow landed with a clatter onto the dirty street outside. He quickly returned himself to his feet and adjusted his cape. He let the snickering and chortling of the crowd behind him rebound from his aching back, and then walked away without a backward glance. Godless heathen! came a cry from a woman in the throng. Heretic! hollered another. He carried on his way at a steady speed, refusing to give his hecklers the satisfaction of a quickened pace. Others in the street parted to let him pass, and watched as he disappeared around a corner, heading deep into the city. What had become of Christopher Marlowe, they wondered and whispered to each other once he'd gone. Speculation skittered amongst them, all save for one, who knew the answer. Had he seen her, she wondered. She knew that he had. Their eyes had met as she'd stepped out of his path. It was the work of less than a second, but it was enough. As she strode through the dank streets, she castigated herself for her foolishness, her muttered oaths persuading people ahead of her to give her a wide berth. She did not notice them. Her mind was back outside the royal court. A momentary lapse, caught off guard by his hasty exit from the palace, and she'd failed the fundamental task of surveillance. Perhaps her countenance had not dropped, she pondered. If he had taken her for no more than an adult passerby, then the mission had not been compromised. It couldn't be compromised. A muddy blend of anger and embarrassment churned in the pit of her, and her commanding officer's words scratched at her ears. It had been months ago now, but it echoed with the clarity of mere moments hence. A minute, the senior officer had barked. Less than a minute, and look what happened! She could feel the force of the older woman's voice pushing against her skin, each word sending a beat of air to sting her. I don't know, ma'am, had come the weak reply. Of course you bloody didn't, that was obvious! She had heard the commander shout before, but never scream. This had been new and it had been her fault. She knew it. She'd begun to gabble a response, but the senior officer had reached full flow. One operative down, and two more missing. They were waiting on you to make the call. They were relying on you. I know, she had whispered. You could have fooled me, the commander had snapped back, her voice reduced in volume, but no less sharp. And then a silence that wrapped itself around the younger operative and pulled at her throat. Bob's duty for three months, came the final judgment. Commander, please. It had been foolish to even consider protesting. Another poor judgment. She'd abandoned the sentence and left as quickly as she could manage. Three months of grunt work had followed. Solo missions that a mere cadet might have handled were it not for her mistake. Now they handed mission briefings to her, smug at the turning of the tables. And each job had led her here, where she'd failed all over again. Why? A miserable thought she'd long kept at bay trickled through her mind. She'd failed because her heart had abandoned her. So why did it hurt to have failed at a job so beneath her? Because she knew she deserved the demotion. 
one operative down and two more missing. How could she begin to make amends? And with no pride to be taken in her current endeavours, what path lay ahead? A curious face, Marlowe mused as he continued on his way. He'd glimpsed it only briefly in his ejection from court, but there had been something quizzical about the woman's expression. Something didn't sit quite right in the way she stood, he told himself, but then that was not unusual. The city had changed. In days gone by, London had been his lifeblood. The sheer energy and fascination and mystery of the city fired every sense he possessed. In each corner and alley and doorway hung intrigue and secrets. Even he, who knew these streets as well as anyone, felt at times as though the crowded thoroughfares shrouded in shadow were like a shifting labyrinth. He could walk the same road a dozen times, and it felt new to him, as though the passing days brought new intrigue to the landscape. He could read the city's people. At a glance, he knew the shape and form and gait of the ailing labourer refusing to surrender his trade, the urchin toying with the first thrilling steps upon the road of criminality, the indomitable women keeping order so as nobody would notice, the lost souls gazing out at the river and pondering their future, the crooks and swindlers and thugs sweeping across the city like morning mist. But now the city was sterile. Where once each street had been an oil painting of rich, dark colours, London was a dull and grey place to Marlowe, the people devoid of character, ambling about their business as routine decreed. There was no mystery in the twist and turn of the back streets, merely dull buildings lining dull streets under a dull, colourless sky. When had it begun, he wondered, when the nightmare came. Since then, the colour had drained from the city. Only in his dreams was the vibrant, thriving mass of London as rich as he remembered. That nightmare. From what chamber of his weary mind had it sprung? And when would it pass? He felt as though it had been part of him forever. And yet that cannot have been. Forever and not at all. As though all cause and effect were suspended around him. A sudden noise up ahead pulled him from his musing. Before him he could see a tavern. The tavern the one he had dreamt of. At once the world around him transformed. Day became night, and the windows of the inn glowed with fire. Some unearthly creature screeched in the distance, and a wave of recognition washed over Marlow. He had been hunting, or had he been hunted? Flashes of memory flitted across his eyes. He remembered running, vaulting over carts and clambering up the side of houses. He had hurtled along rooftops in pursuit of something, and when it had passed, he came to the tavern. He could feel the blood oozing from his lip and the bruises pushing out of his skin. He lifted a hand to wipe his mouth, but there was no blood. In an instant, daylight returned and the waking nightmare vanished. He stood gazing at the tavern ahead and thought of the kindly woman who waited for him in his dreams. Not today, he muttered with a rakish charm. And then he turned, and there she was, the other woman, whom he'd seen outside of the court. She froze for a second, and then hurried away. Idiot, 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 she growled at herself, each time knocking the back of her head against the cold plaster wall behind her. Her castigations drew the attention of a passing tradesman, whose gaze she avoided as she shifted on the barrel upon which she was sitting. Fortunately for her, Marlowe had quickly taken a different route and headed south towards the river. She doubled back and picked up his trail at a far longer distance lest he spot her again. 
After a lengthy walk, they'd arrived in Deptford, with Marlowe disappearing inside another tavern, while she took up her post on the other side of the street. After some time, a chime sounded in her ear. She groaned. There was no use ignoring it. She raised a finger to her ear and tapped the lobe. A pristine hologram appeared before her. Commander Berwick. She was seated behind her desk. On any other day, the sight of her appearing to be seated in the middle of Elizabethan London might have been comical, but neither woman was smiling. Going well, then, said Berwick. She wasn't shouting. That was a positive. I'm sorry, the younger officer muttered. As if that means anything, scoffed Berwick. Just because you're on a mop-up mission doesn't mean you can afford to be slapdash. Severity was creeping into her voice. I know, came the reply. I'm not trying to mess it up. I just... I can't... Can't stick it? asked Berwick with a raised eyebrow. No, she replied, then corrected herself. Yes, I mean, I... I don't want to do this. Nobody does, Berwick said simply. That was the point. The undercover officer frowned and shuffled on her barrel again. Berwick spared her the hint of a smile. You messed up, Berwick began. Big time. But mistakes are what we learn from. I sent you here to learn. I already know how surveillance works. I don't need retraining, the younger woman said suddenly. She immediately regretted the outburst. Good, smiled Berwick. You're getting angry. It's working. What? she whispered. You're unfocused. Making stupid little mistakes because you're still smarting from the big one, Berwick explained, leaning back in her chair. I've listened to your Combs channel, muttering odes at yourself. I don't need an officer with doubt. I need one with fire. You should be offended about being sent on jobs like this. You should demand better. But you just let it happen to you. You didn't fight back. You took on the job and moped away. So finish this mission, get angry, and come back here and demand better. Berwick fixed her with a stare that made new recruits weep. She held it, daring her shamed officer to break it, and then, satisfied, looked away. Won't be long now. Just keep an eye on him and wait for the right moment. Then she looked at her again. And stay out of sight. With that, the hologram disappeared, and she was once again alone in the street. She breathed slowly to calm herself and leant back against the plaster wall, pondering what her superior had said. She looked back at the tavern. All roads led there. Inside, the air was thick with idle gossip. Right in the middle of court, they said, one voice opined. Assassination attempt. Include daylight, I ask you. I heard it was one of them travelling players, a second added, his voice burdened with being an assumed authority on everything. Came at Her Majesty with a dagger. Not what I was told, growled a third, hoping to conjure a sense of mystery. I heard it was the devil. The statement silenced the gaggle of men crowded around the gnarled wooden table. Then laughter erupted. Ales sloshed in tankards and spattered on the floorboards. Devil indeed, the first voice guffawed. More likely one of your lot, eh, Kit? Marlowe had not joined in the laughter. He'd barred the air of speculation and merriment from touching him. He nonchalantly shook spilled beer from his hand and dried his fingers on his doublet. Unlikely, he muttered. How so? asked the second voice. They'd have not reached the edge of the stage before the guards cut them down, Marlow reported matter-of-factly, and then took a sip of his ale. Hark at the expert, the third voice cooed to peals of laughter. 
Marlow didn't mark their faces. His companions were only sounds swirling around his despondent mind. And then a new one called to him. This one was different. Expert indeed, it added in a nasal, crawling tone. Kit the spy must know all about what goes on in Her Majesty's chambers. The cohort erupted again into more laughter and spillages. Marlow remained still, looking at the last man who had spoken. It was as though the man's face were trying to avoid being looked at. Marlow narrowed his eyes to focus on the man. He knew the voice. He had heard it a dozen times. A name crept out of his memory. Freiser. A cunning, pernicious man, if ever there was one. A scoundrel and a swindler. But there was something other about him. Something that scuttled around the dark recesses of Marlow's head. Where and when had that face last appeared before him? The snick of a knife cutting through a stale pie on a plate beside him rang in his ears. A knife. A blade. And there he was, back in his nightmare. Flashes of the dark, moonlit streets burst upon him. He was running, climbing, hunting, fighting. A shifting, changing shadow was lurching at him. His lips stung and his skull ached. Then that tavern again. The fire, the voices, and the woman who soothed his soul. A crash, and the attacker was upon them once more. The attacker with the corrupted face. The face of Freiser. Marlow was dimly aware of a crash as he rose to his feet. Cries of protestation over spilled drinks and dropped food rebounded off of him. They didn't matter. Only Freiser. He reached beneath his cloak and pulled from it a dagger. He aimed it unwaveringly at the face of the man who haunted his sleep. What are you? He hissed with contempt. Freiser's brow furrowed. What have you done to me? He's done nothing, Kit. Sit down, protested one of the voices. It burbled in Marlow's ear as though submerged in deep water. He's losing it another voice declared. No wonder, trouble he's in, a third spat. Heretic of all things. Ought to be bad. Still Marlow looked only on Freiser, who remained unmoving. The nightmare raged inside his head again, transporting him back to the familiar tavern where shattered glass littered the floor. Once again, those skeletal claws sliced the air, and once again the sharpest of them plunged at his chest. Returned to the waking world, he lurched backwards, clutching his heart. No blood. No wound. He staggered and swayed on the spot, all eyes upon him. Fryzer's brow was creased in befuddlement. Marlow steadied himself, sheathed his dagger, and then strode for the door. The commotion inside had alerted her. Too early, she whispered to herself. It's not time yet. She was hesitating over making a report when the door flew open and Marlow emerged. He looked distracted, and she took the opportunity to head for an alleyway. The second her back was turned, he spoke. You! he called across the street. She did not look back. She sprinted up the alleyway, but found a tall building facing her at the end of it. As she scanned for possible footholds, a firm hand grasped her shoulder and span her round. You've been following me, lady, said Marlowe in a firm tone, shot through with some hidden ribbon of playfulness. I wasn't, she insisted as authoritatively as she could. Come now, child, he grinned. I, of all people, know the marks of a spy when I see one. She could offer no reply. His eyes fixed her with a look she'd so seldom seen. He admired her. Shall we talk? he asked simply, letting go of her shoulder. She regained her composure and held herself with a steeliness she'd not felt in so long. Lead the way. 
The sun was sinking toward the horizon to the sound of water lapping the banks of the Thames. They sat on an abandoned boat with rotting beams and ruined rigging. Somehow, after the events of the day, there was peace now. Trained as I am in the arts of espionage, Marlow began, I would not be so forward as to ask who sent you. But I should like to know why. I can't say, she replied. Marlow grinned, his head tilted to catch the dying rays of the sun. But of course. After a moment's pause, he turned to look at her. Do you mean to do me harm? No, she exclaimed immediately. No, I'm just here to observe. I... Say no more, he said kindly and looked again to the sky. Given my current predicament, one must expect surveillance. She let the silence lay between them for a few moments. She knew his history, but this was the chance to hear it firsthand. What predicament would that be? Marlowe chuckled softly and took a long, deep breath. Ah, I find myself castigated for knowing my mind. There is nothing in this world about which I find myself uncertain. It seems that is not acceptable to those who are indisposed to wonderment. You're a heretic, she said simply. Marlowe erupted in a fit of laughter, as though something had been released in him. <laughs> Aye, he smiled. That is the sum. A godless heathen am I. His laughter subsided, and he looked warmly at her. Does that offend you, lady? Believe what you will, she shrugged. It's your life. No longer, I fear, he said with a creeping melancholy. This world is bound to one way of thinking. Dissenters do not last long. He took a breath and pushed the thought away. But tell me, I know the marks of melancholy, and whilst the source of mine is widely known, yours is a mystery. She looked down at her lap, caught unawares by the remark. She parried. I had no hope with you, did I? You see everything. Not quite, he said softly, refusing to recant. Enlighten me. What did it matter, she asked herself. Why keep secrets in here of all places? But the reports would still be filed. Beric would know. I'm not a very good spy, she said at last. How so? asked Marlow. I made a mistake, she answered, and a man lost his life because of it. I see, he pondered, looking out to the river stretching into the distance. And you believe one mistake defines a life? It's quite a severe one she countered. Indeed, he said. But if we falter with each of our faults, we have nothing but to fall. You think I should forget it? she frowned. No, Marlow sighed. I think you should accept that we all of us have blemishes. But it is what we do because of them that defines us. Whether we surrender our freedom to atone for them, or, if the world allows, Prove we can do better because of them. She let his words settle on her for some time, as the sky grew dark above them. Then at last she said, I still see him, the man I lost. We are all of us blighted with bad dreams, Marlow said darkly. His fellow spy observed his manner change. There was uncertainty in those eyes now. Tell me about yours. I dream of death, he confessed. I see the instrument of my own demise at the hands, at the claws of... He was staring into the distance behind her now. 
but he realised she knew more than she had said. No, he was distracted. The claws of a beast, such as that, he rasped. She turned to follow his gaze. Some distance away, almost masked by the dark of the night, but betrayed by the moonlight, stood a creature like a demon. Its skeletal form flexed in the night air, grotesque black talons gleaming. No, she breathed. Not here. Not now. There's nothing left. Marlow drew his dagger and leapt from his seat in pursuit of the creature. Marlow, don't, she cried, but it was too late. Seeing the man approaching, the creature had fled into the streets of the city. She placed a finger to her ear. Report. We have a wraith sighting. I repeat, the wraith are here. With that, she lowered her hand and began to run. The creature moved at incredible speed. Whilst Marlow was forced to slow his pace at each tight corner, his prey merely leapt to the walls of buildings and hurtled onwards, sending chunks of plaster and splinters of wood scattering across the ground. But Marlow would not be outrun, and onwards he thundered. Some distance behind, the younger spy was making ground. Tracking the trail of destruction, she could soon hear Marlow's running footsteps and the snarl of the wraith. She knew their presence had been a possibility, but it was a remote one at that. They rarely scavenged the remains of what they had already supped. So what brought this one here? As she ran, she scanned the buildings the creature had evidently collided with. The damage was patchy, inconsistent. Something was amiss. Up ahead, Marlow hurdled a discarded packing crate and landed heavily on his feet. He accelerated again around another corner, finding himself in a cul-de-sac blocked in by tall buildings. The creature stood at the end of the alleyway, its black, emaciated body rising and falling as it took breath. Marlow came to a halt, his dagger drawn and pointed directly at the beast's inhuman face. He approached cautiously. Demon, he said in a low voice, you've plagued my dreams for too long. At last, I have you here in the waking world. Footsteps echoed off the walls around them as the young woman arrived in the alleyway, breathing heavily. Marlow, she panted. Get away from it. What are you, beast? Marlow demanded of the idle creature. What business have you with me? Christopher Marlow, came a voice drawn from the depths of despair. It could only have been the creature's, but it sounded from every direction, as though projected directly into the two spies' heads. You walk in dead alleys on borrowed hours. The wraith have done with you. It raised a gnarled talon. Blood was dripping from it. Marlow felt a searing pain in his chest and reeled into the woman's grasp. He could see the tavern again. The decimated form of Fryzer, possessed of these unearthly arms, was before him. The blood dripped on the floorboards, and here and now on the cobbles. The creature reared up to its full height and towered over the two pursuers. There are greater feasts awaiting us. Now we are free. A ghostly wind whispered along the dead-end street and bit at Marlow and the young woman. With a snapping sound like the breaking of brittle bones, the creature faded from view. All was calm. Marlow looked up at the thin sliver of sky visible between the overbearing buildings. Then he turned and grabbed the woman who had followed him this past day. You knew that creature, he said. She began to protest, but he had no time for lies. You did not flinch when you saw it. You did not hesitate in pursuing it. It evaporated into the firmament and you say nothing. Give me the truth. For the first time she saw fear in his eyes. Not creeping dread or irking worry. 
Before her was a man consumed by terror. She'd been sent to protect him. She owed him the truth. It's called a wraith, she began. It used that word, Marlow tremored. Where do such creatures originate? Where have you seen them before? Who are you? It's... it's a fantastical tale, she answered. I have an open mind, he countered. How to explain? She paused for some moments and Marlow waited. Then at last she was ready. The river. The Thames. You can sail upon that river and move from place to place. Towns. Countries. Continents. I know a river that flows through days. Years. Centuries. I can sail through time as you sail through this city. I... The creature and I are from a place far down river of this day. Marlowe's countenance did not waver. He believed her. Then what business have you here? he asked. That creature has blighted my dreams and now I find it here with you. Do you know why I dream of such wretched images that spill my blood? They... they are not dreams, Marlowe. They must be, he frowned. I navigate the rivers and streams of time. The creature, it tries to cut them off, or redirect them. And it did. It found your tributary of the river, and it damned the flow. It changed your course. Then I have prophesied my death, asked Marlow. No, she replied sadly. What you saw, it was never meant to happen. But it did, and now the echo of it spans the river of your life like a dream. That's the change the creature made. You weren't meant to die that day. I am not dead, he snapped. Marlow, I'm sorry. But you are. Then why do I still walk this earth? I live, I breathe, I see. He was raging now. These are lies. You're in the water that is no longer fed by the river, she insisted. These are the hours you were meant to live in, but they no longer have a source to feed them. A damned tributary of a river, a cutting from a plant, a dream echoing in the dark. My borrowed hours, Marlow whispered, recalling what the beast had said. If I am already condemned, as you say, why have you come to find me? Are you my salvation? I'm sorry, but no, she answered sadly. My people, we can still find the branches once linked to the river. We navigate them and see that their waters fade as they are meant to. But you said this wasn't meant to happen. He recalled. No, she explained. The creature and its kind, they exist at the depths of the river, too deep to do harm. But someone drew them to the surface and they escaped, and then... It killed me, Marlow muttered darkly, the reality sinking in. He thought of the staleness of the city and the joy that had abandoned him, the colour fading from the streets as though all life were draining away. Now he knew why. I am dead. He let out a hollow laugh. <laughs> All this time I thought I was dreaming. And I am the fantasy. I'm sorry, she whispered. It shouldn't have been this way. Then what should have happened? He asked. I can't say, she said with tears in her eyes. The creatures have caused enough damage, enough change. If I interfere any more, I... Then say nothing, Marlow interjected. 
There was something of his usual self about him now. He held up his head, walked with a confidence few could muster. Even in his eyes, those weary, sad eyes, there were the embers of fire. And so I shall live my borrowed hours with you to watch over me, fair lady. He kissed her hand. How fortunate I am. Few spies have the skill to track me when I've no wish to be followed. You did well. Don't let your faults cause you to fall. He let go of her hand and began to walk away. As he neared the corner at the top of the alleyway, he stopped and turned back. In my dream, in what really happened, he said, there was another woman. I recall her face. She was with me when... She was there at the end. Who was she? I don't know, she said, shaking her head. But my people will find out. When you do, Marlow smiled, give her my love. I hope before these numbered hours are through, I shall dream of her again. He gave his guardian one final smile and walked into the night. Some hours later, she sat once again on the barrel on the opposite side of the street to the Deptford Tavern, watching. Inside the alehouse, the occasional burst of laughter or raucous yell could be heard. Each one of them pushed at her. It was time. Above her, the sky was dark. Passers-by had muttered to one another about the encroaching rain and the ominous clouds heralding a storm. She knew better. The buildings themselves appeared gloomy and imposing, the ground dry and brittle. Then it came. The sound of unrest inside the tavern. Raised voices burbled from within, too muffled to be distinct. Chairs were pushed back across the floor and tankards were sent tumbling. The voices swelled and the uproar grew until at last the roar of anger, the howl of pain and the screams of onlookers who burst into the street and fled the scene. The sounds of the brawl became muffled again, not by the building, but by the air itself. The sky grew even darker, but no clouds could be seen, only a field of darkness swallowing the firmament. The plaster on the wall she had leant on began to flake and crumble. Cracks appeared in the dry ground, and darkness seeped from within them. Either end of the street began to fade from view, as though obscured by a deep black fog. The severed tributary of the river was at last drying out. The job was done. Rising to her feet, she dusted off her clothes. She thought back to the last time she had been here, of Beric's hologram and all it had said to her. And then she thought of Marlowe, his history changed and his stolen hours blighted by bad dreams. It was time to demand better. She raised a finger to her ear. Officer Yarrow reporting in. Surveillance completed. Timeline dissolving. I'm coming back. As the last remnants of the street crumbled around her, she took a small metal cylinder from her pocket and placed her thumb on a glowing button at one end. Just before the waters ran dry, she headed for the river.
The Chronicles of Professor Chronomier, Borrowed Hours, written by Dario Knight and performed by Erica Sanderson, with music by Kevin MacLeod. <laughs>